I'm Rebecca Hebb, Editor-in-Chief of Retina Today, and I want to welcome you to this episode of New Retina Radio. Today, we're focusing on a very important topic, diversity and inclusion, and we're talking to academic retina specialists who have recently been named as department chairs. In this episode, they're sharing their journey to leadership, the hurdles they had to overcome, and some advice they have for aspiring retina specialists. Joining me today are our guest medical editors of our diversity and inclusion issue and our moderators, Maria Barakal and Adina Barakal. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for inviting us to moderate this very important discussion. I'm Maria Barakal. I'm a vitro-retinal uh, surgeon in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and I'm here with my sister. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm um, Nina Barakal. And I'm a professor in the Department of Ophthalmology at Bascom Palmera Institute, and we would like to welcome our faculty panel today, Drs. Paul Chan, Shlomit Shal, and Sophie Bakri. Would you, each of you, introduce yourselves, please? Hi. Uh, thanks, Nina. Thanks, Maria. Uh, thanks, Rebecca. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, I think this is a very important topic. Um, look forward to the discussion. Um, my name is Paul Chan, uh, and I am the department head at the Illinois Eye and Ear Infirmary of the University of Illinois at Chicago. Hi, uh, I'm Shlomi Chal. I'm a vitreoretinal surgeon, a clinician scientist. I'm the chair of the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at uh, UMass Medical School. And I'm recently named as the medical group president uh, here as well. Hello, I'm Sophie Bakri. I'm a retina specialist and I'm the chair of the Department of Ophthalmology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Perfect. Thanks, everyone. Maria and Nina, both of you have been involved in diversity and inclusion efforts for years. Can you guys start us off with your thoughts on why these discussions are so important for the field of retina? Yes, well, I can I can start since I'm the oldest. Um, I uh, you know, we have been, uh, retina has evolved a lot and we see many more uh, women in retina than when I started, but still when we really look at academia and advancements of women and minorities into uh, hierarchical positions in academia, we just need to look at the study recently published uh, in the New England of November, which states that when they compared uh, the advancement uh, of women through the ranks of academia, uh, promotion in academia mainly, to not only uh, professorships, but also to heads of the department. We are doing much worse in these past 20 years than in the 20 years before. Since uh, we now have, uh, <laughs> fortunately here with us, Shlomit, uh, Sophie, and Paul, it would be great to see how they see this picture and how uh, they see that we can really overcome barriers uh, into advancement, in, into having more diverse departments and how that is important and helpful moving forward. You know, I consider diversity to be diversity um, of thought and you get different diversity of thought from getting people from different backgrounds, bringing ideas um, to the table. And I think that, um, you know, department chairs are role models and if you um, want to look at bringing through a diverse pipeline, you have to have diverse role models, diverse mentors. And um, essentially, you know, people look and think about role models that potentially look like them. And if they look up at department chairs and see a lot of people that aren't diverse, they think that that position um, is not attainable. 
And so I think it's important to um, the department chairs to represent um, the future of ophthalmology, you know, the people coming through our pipeline. And, um, and I think that's the reason we need department chairs across the country from all, uh, all different kinds of backgrounds. It's an active, active process, right? I mean, I think that it doesn't, it doesn't change, it doesn't progress, it doesn't evolve uh, unless we're actively thinking about it um, and actively mentoring and, and making conscious decisions um, to be clear about putting women on the podium, thinking about supporting and mentoring underrepresented minorities in medicine. You know, and, and I think that in ophthalmology, you know, what's great about it is that there is a significant uh, push or initiative to, to consciously think about these things. For example, the MOM program, right, for the American Academy of Ophthalmology. So, you know, um, you know I think that that's, that's been a tremendous success uh, over, over the years. Something like 17% of all department heads in ophthalmology are women, right? And then if you dig, dig further, you know, underrepresented minorities and so forth, you know, there's even less. And, you know, I, I just, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about that. So my uh, perception is that there has been a progress and we are progressing. For example, when I became department chair in June of 2016, there were only six women chairs uh, and I became the seventh. Uh, and today there are 22 women chairs. So in the numbers in the academic medicine, we are more women chairs and we still have a women chair meeting and groups and we support each other. And I think the key for progress is having this kind of group support because quite frankly, when I was offered the job as chair, I was scared and I was afraid to take it. It was much more convenient for me to stay where I was and um, take care of my patients. And I was the director of Retina and to just uh, you know, be happy and successful. I had everything I wanted in terms of uh, career challenges. And uh, the chair example that I had were all men. And I didn't know if I would be uh, good or not good. And I was scared. And the reason that uh, I took the job, or one of the reasons, is that uh, my dean, my former dean at the University of Louisville, she was a woman. And um, she said to me, what a wonderful opportunity. And I will never forget these words from a woman leader. And these you know, few words gave me the courage to do it while you know, other people try to discourage and say, you know, this is a very difficult job. You know, most women do not want these jobs. You have other obligations. Why do you need this headache? And now as a New Mass Memorial Medical Group president, I have the opportunity to affect and influence the entire healthcare organization. So if I hadn't taken the job and if I were as, a, you know, timid as I was back then, and no one encouraged me and no one supported me, I, you know, I wouldn't be here today. So I think this is the number one message uh, that I took uh, and I tried to practice is just encourage, support, uh, believe in uh, women, in uh, people from uh, underrepresented minorities. And also for me as a foreign medical grad, believe in people that were born in other countries and speak different languages and come from other country, uh, countries and other cultures and other religions. 
I think that happens to women in a lot of power positions, you know, president of this or a leader of that or the other thing is that many times you don't have an example, you don't have a, a, a somebody who supports you that's not, you know, that's not a male. And I will tell you in my career, apart from my sister, most of my my mentors have been men, you know, very, very few women. But that said, I think that the courage you had to take a job like that is going to change things because you're in power and the change comes from above. And people that are young, that are different, that come from different backgrounds, they open the door to people who are different. I think it's, it's well known that diversity in any organization, in really any field, it promotes better decision making. You know, so when we look at residents, when we look at fellows, when we look at medical students, um, and even among the faculty, I think diversity is really, really critical um, to, to basically evolve and build a better program and a better culture, right? So it's, I think it's just, it's really important. And again, it's an active process, right? You have to think about it and you have to have the structure in place to make it work. Um, you know, it's sort of, you know, it's interesting, you know, one of the first things that I did, you know, I'm, I'm a very new chair, but, you know, the first thing that, that we did in the department was create a vice chair for diversity and inclusion. And that was, you know, that was Jenny Lim, you know, who is, who's, who's a woman retina specialist who, as you all know, has a lot of experience promoting young women and, you know, with women in retina and so forth and so on. I think, you know, that's that, you know, she's been great, a great partner um, with a lot of great ideas. So, Diversity matters. We know this, um, and I think that from a role model perspective, you know, and, and you touched on this. You, if you don't see people who are succeeding or leading, who you think that you can model after, you know, then you, it sort of creates a hurdle, right? And you know, for me, and and you, you guys know this. You know, some of the most important people in my life and, and, and my mentors were women, right? My mother, right? I mean, you know, she was Dick Green's first fellow um, at Wilmer. And, you know, I would hear the, the stories around her time, you know, as, as an ophthalmologist in that era. Um, and she's still practicing. You know, Joan Miller, you know, who, who was a chair, basically became chair when I first started my fellowship. She's about a year in you know, has mentored me and supported me throughout my entire career. So, you know, I think that, you know, you have to have mentors um, who are diverse. You have to have um, faculty and leadership who are diverse. I think it matters all around. One thing that I would add to this is that uh, in medicine, we have responsibility to our patients and uh, our patients, especially here, you know, in, in Worcester, Massachusetts, we take care of different population. Uh, in our clinic every day, we speak 72 languages with our patients every single day with the help of interpreters. And so it's so critical to have a workforce that looks like our patients that can, you know, in, in, in color, in shape, in language, um, in, in, a, in understanding the culture in you know what people say so it's not only our words it's the way that we connect uh, with our patients and one thing that is very important to promote uh, diversity is to increase the sense of belonging and so patients when they come to the clinic and they see a physician that looks like them 
uh, or speaks their language even better, they have immediately a sense of increased trust, increased belonging. And I think that we as leader have an obligation to get as many uh, caregivers as possible. And it can be physicians and it can be staff, but representatives of the population that we serve. Yeah, I think that, so Shalom, a great point. Um, you know, and when we talk about health equity and, and this, this gap, it's, it's fundamental that you have people who are, again, um, representative of the population that you serve as well, right? The, I mean, it's, it's, it's been shown time and time again that people trust, uh, you know, people who speak their own language, who look like them, so, so what did you guys think, you know, one of, one of the things that you hear time and time again when you're in discussions about diversity or creating, you know, a faculty that is diverse and then they say, well, you're compromising quality to become diverse. What do you say to people who say those things? So, you know, I hear it a lot in academic medicine. What I would say is this, diversity is an added value. So it's not only you know, how good researcher you are or how good clinician you are or what are your communication skills or how you function in a team or how many students you mentored or how many patients you, how many papers you published. The diversity is one extra thing that you have. Um, so that's really a, a, a mindset shift so if I have somebody that is a good clinician, a good scientist, and diverse, I think it's superior than somebody that who, who is not, because diversity is a value, is another plus. Um, and it, if somebody can increase the diversity of my team, I think that's a big plus for my department and for my team. Uh, so that's how I see it. Uh, one thing that uh, we have here at the University of Massachusetts, we have a residency program director who is an African-American woman. And as a result, a third of our residents are African-Americans. And I don't think that there is any program in the country that has as many um, African-Americans as residents. And we're very proud of it, but absolutely I can contribute this to the fact that the leader is African-American. I can tell you as a, a woman department chair, uh, you know, more women interview uh, with me than men. I, I see that. And uh, more women feel that they can, you know, uh, I can understand them perhaps uh, better. And I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, that's how they feel. And uh, there are many more women interviewing for positions than men. I, I, I think you, you I, I really loved all your comments, but I think it's really important in, you know, uh, changing our value sets. If we are just focused on grades or, you know, your score in this or your score in that, um, you will only have uh, very uh, boring traditional applicants who will all maybe look the same because of course, you know, somebody who comes from a more affluent background may get, you know, better uh, board scores than uh, somebody uh, who has to work two jobs to make it through med school or whatever. So I think changing what we see as valuable, I think that is key. There is the concept, Maria, of miles traveled. Miles traveled to get here. So if you take my example, I traveled across the ocean, right? Had to do everything, all my training uh, twice, basically, 
take my board exam twice just to get to the same level of you know my peers. Um, so this is you know my own example. When I look at uh, an underrepresented minority, there is also in miles travels. You know, not necessarily they have been to a private school or an affluent school. Not necessarily they had this anyone in medicine in their family that could guide them. Not necessarily they had uh, approach to a prominent uh, scientist that can guide them and you know give them even uh, inspiration over research. So that's how I try to you know uh, evaluate our residents and really think about you know how tough it was for them just to become an applicant. What, you know, what hurdles did they need to cross? What mountains they needed to climb? What river did they need to cross in order to, to get here? But I'll tell you, just to play devil's advocate, I, I have said what you have said many times in, throughout, throughout my career, and the <laughs> people who, who believe the opposite will say, well, what you're telling me is that the efforts of the people who grew up in this country or the efforts of the people who, you know, push through are going to be penalized because you want to give it to somebody who doesn't have the scores or doesn't have the qualities to do this. So the, the answer is you should consider both and take both. So I think there are enough residency programs in our country. If we all, you know, think in that way, there is going to be room for people who were born here and reach the high places and, uh, and they are very, uh, you know, very welcome to participate in the residency program. But we also need to consider uh, other uh, candidates as well. And again, the, the board scores are, not the board, but USMLE scores are, are going away, which is a very good thing but it's gonna make our traditional decision-making, the cutoffs, much more difficult. So how are you gonna evaluate? And what's gonna happen, I think, that we're gonna see more and more medical students taking time to do a research year, to spend in a place that people get to know them. And I think that's a very good uh, change. So you're gonna, it's gonna be longer for you. You know, your miles travels are going to, to be expanded, but people will know you and, you will know them and your commitment to the profession uh, will increase. If we could backtrack for just a minute to the hiring process, Shlomo, I echo Nina when I say you had a fascinating experience when you were hired as a department chair. Sophie, did you have a similar experience? I, I, I um, got this position you know, through an internal search and, um, and, and that's the way that the chair positions you know, are done at Mayo Clinic and so before I even got to the you know, final three, the search committee knew everything about me from my peers, my colleagues. They knew all the pluses and minuses as if you, uh, of whether you hired candidate A, B, or C. And I went into the process thinking, okay, they know who I am, they know what I represent. If this is what they want, then they know what they're getting. If they want something else, then they have candidate B and they have also candidate C. And I went through the process intrigued as to what they wanted and whether or not I was the person they, what they wanted in terms of what I could do for the department, but also um, in terms of whether they wanted my phenotype. And that I wasn't sure about. And I always wondered whether they would pick my phenotype um, as you talk about, you know, with, with diversity, because yes, I'm certainly very different. And um, in, you know, in, in many, many ways. 
And so when they called to offer me the position, I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess they went for me then. They know what I have to offer. They know who I am. And, you know, and here it is. But it, it, when, you're, uh, when you're the choice of an internal search, they know everything about you. And I've worked at Mayo Clinic for 15 years. And so they have input from all kinds of stakeholders in the department and also the institution. That's and good. so they were obviously ready for the change. As I'm listening to you talk, you say, okay, well, if they said it's okay, then it's okay. Um, but the inner feeling, you know, kind of the imposters, am I good enough for this? Does a chair look like that? And I can tell you that, you know, recently I went through a, a search for a president of the medical group and here there was never a woman president of a medical group, never, ever. There was never a woman with an accent as a, <laughs> as a president, never. So everybody, actually, there was no one from outside of Massachusetts. Uh, so these were the people before, and they were very successful. And as I was kind of preparing for the search committee, I, I really thought that the other candidates were better because of, you know, this is what you think would be a successful president. Um, so I think a lot of times we hold ourselves uh, back and uh, we really need kind of people from the side to say, yes, you can do it. No, yes, you would be fantastic. Yes, go for it. As an Asian American man, you know, my parents were immigrants, right? So, so my, you know, I'm, I'm first generation and you're, you're, you're told early on, do your work, keep your head down, don't make a fuss, don't make noise, you know, don't cause problems. Um, and oftentimes don't ask what you want, right? Just serve. And I think that, you know, for, for me, you know, some of, some of the things that changed my perspective and a lot of things were seeing people who were chairs. I mean, my dad actually, for what, you know, for those of you who don't know, he was actually the first ophthalmology chair of Chinese descent, right? Almost 40 years ago. You know, I think that there, there's a certain, there are a lot of cultural issues around this as well. And when you look at also just the, the, the sort of the landscape and, and the demographics around, you know, look at who are becoming doctors, right? I think leadership should represent who is, you know, who we represent, right? So over 51% of the, the of medical students who are sort of coming are women, right? I think there, there are a growing number of Latinx and African-Americans. There are a lot of Asians, we know this, but yet there aren't as many Asian leaders, right? So, I mean, these are things that we just have to think through, but I think what it comes down to, and Shlomo mentioned this before, and Maria and Nina and Sophie, it's about mentoring, right? We have a responsibility, I think, to future generations to mentor and to give them examples and to give them really the, the, the tools to lead, right, and to serve. Like you, Paul, I don't like to ask for things, but the thing about being a department chair is that you ask for things for others. And so it is so much easier, you know, everything, if you can, you know, you can deflect attention off yourself, if you can empower others, if you can give others roles and help them shine, then, you know, I try to run department meetings where I have uh, the people who are running those particular um, 
uh, things, those particular issues they speak and they present. And I think that's a good way of, of um, building, you know, a talent pipeline. And when I go and ask for things, I'm not asking for stuff for myself. I'm asking for stuff for colleagues uh, and other people in my department. I can tell you a quick story. Um, uh, I, I just graduated from, um, from a master's in healthcare management program and there were many uh, physician leaders uh, in the class. It's a program uh, uh, at Harvard just for physicians. And one of the physicians, uh, we talked about salary and salary negotiations. And one of the physicians talked about his wife, who is a physician, and he uh, discussed how she negotiated for the salary. Basically, okay, whatever they gave her, she said, yes, she didn't ask for anything. But when he was negotiating, he, she came to him and said, you should ask for this and you should ask for that and don't take this. If it, so I think, you know, it's kind of, we are used to fighting for others. We're used to fighting for our husbands, for our kids, for our family, for our parents. We're used to that. We're comfortable with that. We're not so comfortable going and say, well, you know what? I deserve to pay, be paid more because I am this and that and you need to pay me equal or even more because I'm that good. So I think with that, we still have, um, you know, we still have a journey to go through to, to do that. What do you think it's needed to really promote diversity? Where, where are we in, in 2021 in, in our field? So I think the, the most important thing is to uh, keep discussing it and keep putting it as a priority. Um, in uh, our medical group, I uh, placed it as a, we call it as lead, lead initiative. And uh, the L stands for leadership. The E stands for engagement, the A stands for access, and D for diversity. So everybody knows we call it Physicians Lead. And every single uh, month we discuss diversity and we involve uh, our entire faculty, the entire organization with, um, with, with diversity initiatives. And every single department, you know, when we know we are a retina specialist and, um, you know, the, the, the uh, differences uh, are perhaps not as stark as, for example, um, mother's uh, uh, death uh, in, in delivery, for example. But when you hear other departments' efforts in what they're doing to promote uh, diversity and healthcare equity, then you think about it. And you have to talk about it every day and think about it every day. And not only talk about it and think about it, but really get people specifically in leadership position that will be diverse and will promote uh, the next uh, generation of more diverse people. Um, I know Maria gave us uh, the numbers and the, you know, to start this conversation and it was kind of a, a grim uh, statistic. However, I really do believe that uh, after all we've been through specifically in the last year in this uh, nation, people have really um, felt the inequities in the coronavirus, you know, how uh, the black and Hispanic population were uh, affected much more than the white population in every single area in the country. And I think genuinely people feel that as physicians and as healthcare, healthcare givers, we have the obligation to 
make that better and make the access to care easier and make the communication clearer and really regain the trust and the sense of belonging. So uh, there's no you know, quick remedy for that. Uh, and so the three things I would say is one, keep, keep it in the top priorities of your organization and your department. This is one thing. Two, find the leaders that you can place from diverse uh, backgrounds and three, the most important thing for us is our patients. Be in connection with the patient and see how they respond to the changes that you make. And I agree um, with uh, Shlomo's well thought out plan. I think it takes role models, uh, leaders at the top. It takes commitment. It takes investment and it takes developing uh, the, the talent pipeline with, you know, careful mentorship. And, you know, outside, you know, on the staff side, I, I agree that our patients have to be able to relate to the entire care team, not just the physicians, but the nurses, the technicians, everybody who takes care of the patient. And so it's important to partner with the community and partner with local um, schools and, um, and, and hire from uh, the community and from where your, your patients come from. I think it goes beyond just our, our leadership in our departments or the, the you know, how, our, how our departments are uh, sort of built in terms of our faculty and our, and our trainees, but also I think branching out, we need programs like Winter, right? We need programs like the Minority Ophthalmology Mentoring Program. Um, we need partnerships with, with our, our societies, right? To, to promote this in our culture of ophthalmology and, and in retina. Um, you know, an additional factor that I think is incredibly important is philanthropy, right? So thinking about all the grateful patients that we have um, who we care for, thinking about the alumni that have graduated from our programs that, you know, really have done very, very well. Um, I think that you need endowment to help promote and recruit good people, right, who are diverse, right, who are Latinx, African-American, who are women, um, you know, who basically people who are underrepresented in medicine. Um, but again, you know, it, it is an active, active process that we all have to care about. Thank you, Sophie. And thank you, Shlomit. And thank you, Paul. Uh, this has been wonderful. And I want to thank you all for leading the way into a more diverse uh, environment in retina and in ophthalmology, which is so, so needed uh, in these upcoming years. So thank you. I agree, Maria. This has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you all for joining us today. This concludes today's episode, The Next Generation of Retina Leaders. Please tune in for future episodes of New Retina Radio. Mm -hmm.